You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters close to the stars. And this is episode 454 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. This week's guest, or every week's guest, of course, are special, but this week's guest, well, it took a long time to get her on the show. It took a lot of back and forth on Twitter, sort of direct messages, but I convinced her, and she was convinced to come on the Columbia Calling Podcast to tell her side of the story. So we will be talking to German citizen, Rebecca Sprober. Remember Rebecca? Those of you who don't remember Rebecca, she was the German citizen, as I mentioned previously, who was there in the Paro Nacional protests in Cali, the southwestern city in Colombia. She was with the Primera Linea. She was alongside them and recording events and everything that happened with the Primera Linea, so sort of the front line of the demonstrations when they got violent. She was there recording and posting to social media. Latterly, later on, her love was killed when they were out on a date. Twelve bullets shot. And then she was later deported from Colombia. She's very careful how she discusses these things with us here on the Columbia Calling Podcast because she is in a process, her words, of reconciliation with Colombia, and she hopes to come back at some point in the future. And we discuss this as well. But she tells us a story of that fateful night and what she was doing and how she was cataloging what happened in Colombia. There'll be many of you out there who will be vehemently against what she has to say. Uh, and of course, there'll be those out there as well. It's like she was just there recording as an activist what was happening during the Paro Nacional. We ask her whether she was actually involved in smashing windows and throwing rocks. And, of course, she comes clean on all of these things. But you'll, you'll hear for yourself. And I kind of just let her speak because it's her story. It's what happened to her. And she's been so stigmatized in the Colombian press that we haven't had the opportunity to hear with a certain degree of clarity what it was that happened during that time in Cali in 2021. So I know you'll enjoy this one. It's a great episode. In other news, we do have a Columbia News Brief from Emily Hart, which is excellent as always, but also not pertaining to the Columbia Calling Podcast. But if you don't get enough of my dulcet tones, well, I will be hosting what is known as the Latin News Podcast. So that's Latin News, who one of our sponsors, latinnews.com. I will be hosting their new podcast starting in a couple of weeks' time. It will be a fortnightly podcast, but it will be dealing with events and goings-on in the whole region of Latin America. So I will, of course, be posting that when it comes out, and I hope that many of you 
will also listen to that because it is, of course, our field and our area of expertise. The first episode will be coming out on the 24th of January. So, of course, mark your diaries for that day. Look for the Latin News Podcast. So that's the news from today. I hope you read um, also Emily Hart's article in the Sunday Times of London about a contract killing that took place in London, but of course has its tentacles all the way back through the drugs trade, the cocaine trade, all the way back to Colombia. So a fascinating article there. Do check it out when you have the time. So it's, uh, we've posted it on social media. We've posted it on our Facebook page. Uh, and Emily should be very proud of an excellent piece in the Sunday Times of London. Thank you all for listening. We'll go over now to the Columbia News Brief and then on to talk with Rebecca Spruver, who's on the line from Germany. So don't go away, listen to our sponsors, and then, of course, tune in to the rest of the podcast. Thank you again. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of January 23rd, 2023. A diplomatic spat between Colombia and Guatemala broke out this week, as the Guatemalan special corruption prosecutor announced legal action against the Colombian Minister of Defence, Ivan Velázquez, in relation to the Odebrecht scandal, a mass bribery scheme in exchange for public works contracts across Latin America. Human Rights Watch dismissed the Guatemalan claims, pointing out that Rafael Curuchiche, the prosecutor pursuing Velázquez, has himself been sanctioned by the USA for corruption. The organization went on to say that the allegations are revenge for anti-corruption work, as Velázquez led the UN-backed Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, which uncovered corruption in private and public sectors in the country. It even implicated the country's then-president, who resigned and was arrested. The UN have expressed concern about the growing number of reports suggesting criminal prosecution is being used to persecute anti-corruption work in Guatemala. The UN also pointed out that, due to his work with that commission, Velázquez, in fact, has immunity. 
Nevertheless, the Guatemalan prosecutor suggested he may still be investigated for what's been termed illegal, arbitrary and abusive acts. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, immediately announced that he would protect his minister and even recalled Colombia's ambassador for Guatemala, a sign of the seriousness of the diplomatic situation. Peace talks with the ELN guerrilla group seem to be back on track after the crisis caused by Petro's announcement of a bilateral ceasefire which was seemingly never actually agreed. Differences were reportedly settled in Venezuela earlier this month and talks are due to resume in Mexico in February. President Petro has made his debut at the Davos World Economic Forum with a heavy environmental focus, announcing the $70 million earmarked for energy transition policy with another $3.5 million to halt Amazon deforestation. He spoke of a vision of decarbonised capitalism and his proposal for developing countries to swap their debt for environmental action. Also at the Davos Forum, Minister of Mines and Energy Irene Vélez reaffirmed the government's controversial commitment to halt new hydrocarbon exploration contracts, implying that the oil industry will limit exploration to the 145 contracts already signed. Colombia is the second most polarised country in the world, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, launched this year at the Davos Forum. Along with Argentina, the US, Spain, Sweden and South Africa, Colombia has high levels of internal division. Many respondents felt that the country has major divisions which are difficult to overcome. The barometer reports a high level of polarisation globally and a plummeting level of trust in governments, which they warn could erode democracies worldwide. Last month's revelations from outlet Univision about the rape of a girl in Guaviare by soldiers were dismissed by Attorney General Francisco Barbosa as an invention, even as prosecutors last week opened eight investigations against the military for sexual abuse of minors. A commission found that at least 500 minors had suffered these crimes. The president declared it a priority issue and announced new measures after a report showed that at least 69 indigenous girls from the Jew and Nukak communities had suffered sexual abuse in the area in the last four years. Many of these live in economically precarious situations. Colombia's minimum wage is to be increased from 1 million pesos to 1.16 million pesos per month, a 16% increase from last year. The measure affects 3.42 million people who work under minimum wage, nearly 16% of the economically active population. Labour unions had been pushing for a 20% increase to ensure the wage rose above inflation, which was above 13% last year. Transport subsidies will also rise by 20%, a subsidy which should cover the expenses incurred by the employees' commute to their place of work. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 454 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Our new guest, our guest, she may need some introduction. She may need no introduction from many of you out there. It's Rebecca Sprusser. Rebecca is in Germany right now. And she is the, well, let's just say the, the German citizen who was deported from Colombia during the Paro Nacional a couple of years ago in Cali. Welcome on the Colombia Calling podcast. Hello, Richard. Good evening. Well, first, 
Yeah, go Thank for you it. so much for having me. Um, and I wanted to tell you something special. I mm-hmm. didn't tell you before, but you know, when I was get, getting back to Germany, I was giving for like months and months so many interviews. And at one point, I really got, I don't know, I really got tired of giving interviews. So I decided I will not give any interviews anymore. And so like for months, I didn't give one. And I didn't accept one. I refused every interview they were asking me. And when you wrote me on Twitter, I was checking your stuff and your work and your page. And I really, really liked it. And that's why I finally accepted. So just to let you know, oh. it's like the first interview I'm giving. And only because I really like your work. I appreciate your work. And gracias por tu lucha, no? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> yeah. for those kind words. Thank you. Someone read my website. Um, yeah. no, thank you so much for that. I mean, it does mean a lot. It does mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Especially you've been refusing, as you say, refusing interviews yes. for months. Uh, and now, yay, you're on the Columbia Calling. Yeah. Um, also, like Nikki Davila was asking me, like everyone, and every, uh, how can you refuse her? And I was like, no, I just feel, I don't feel like it. it was like there were so many interviews, and it was just, it's like it. You know, I, I'm done with it, but yeah. so you're the first one, yeah. Wow. And you refused Vicky Davila, but you've accepted yeah. Columbia Calling. But Vicky yeah. Davila would have done a hatchet job. She would have done everything to try and make you, uh, you know, evil. That's I guess truth. so. I yeah, guess that's, so. That's, yeah. what she is. that's what Semana Magazine is right now. It's all clickbait and everything else. She would have, she would have uh, done mm-hmm. her utmost to rile up their audience and, and made mm-hmm. it... Uh, difficult for you to to let's say reconcile with Colombia, and I think that's why we're talking today is because you have a desire to reconcile with Colombia. But before we get into that, Rebecca, you are let's say let you are a, a human rights activist, a journalist, and what I really want to know is how how and for my listeners because we there will be questions bouncing in, although this is not live, obviously, uh-huh. but there'll be <laughs> questions that bounce in everywhere. Is that, how did you come to be in, well, Colombia and specifically Cali during the Paro Nacional? Oh, my God. I think maybe I have to start a little bit earlier. Go for it. Like, like first, I never really felt German. Okay. So I was born in Germany. I was raised in Germany. But when I finished school, I started traveling. I started living abroad. So I lived in many countries. I've been to, like, a whole lot of countries more. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe when the pandemic hit. I was living in Argentina and they had like the strictest quarantine worldwide. So like after one month, I decided to go back to Germany. And then I was there in Germany. I never really lived in Germany. And I was like, oh my God, what what am I doing here now? And there was like, luckily I found a salsa dancing scene. (laughs) And it was like really heaven for me. And this is how I got to salsa. Really during the pandemic, everything was closed. And they were just Latinos who were dancing on the street. And they introduced me to salsa. And I completely fell in love with it. And there I also got to know Colombians who were teaching me salsa calenia. Uh-huh. And they always said, hey, if you really want to dance, like Germany is nice and stuff. But if you like, really want to dance, you have to go to Cali. And they always told me about Cali, how beautiful it is and everything. And at the same time, I was finishing my studies. I was studying industrial engineering. Mm -hmm. And first, I wanted to go back to Mexico because before that, I was also living in Mexico and I was working a journalist. But I was like, no. If I now go back to Mexico and take, like, I was um, 
applying for a job in journalism. They accepted me. And I just wanted to go to Mexico. And then I was like, no. If I now get settled in Mexico, maybe I never get to Cali. And this why, like, very, very spontaneously decided to go to Cali. Mm. And I was a, and in Cali, I was da- um, working in a dancing school. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, it was a very short time, but maybe for, like, two weeks, I had a beautiful life. I was taking dancing classes every day. I was getting to know people. And, like, two weeks later, the Toca de Queda started. Yeah. Like the quarantine, which happened from the government, and they shut everything down. But maybe like two weeks, I got a normal lifestyle in Cali, and I really enjoyed it. And also during this two weeks, I decided, no, I cannot leave. So actually, I canceled my job in Mexico and told my bosses, I'm so sorry, but I'm staying in Colombia. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah. you saw out the quarantine in Colombia. And mm-hmm. of course, the quarantine sort of led to other things. And you, I mean, obviously you'd made a community of friends in Colombia. You were living in Cali. And I guess then we, we, we skip forward to the Paro Nacional. And for those who, who don't know what that was about, a a nationwide strike uh, based on all sorts of complaints. But what it, what I would like to say is that there was a psychological transition that has taken place in Colombia in recent years, and in particular, surrounding the 2016 uh, peace accord, a psychological transition took place for many, and in particular, the young, who may not have lived through the worst days of the Colombian uh, conflict. This in turn was sort of boiled, it became simmering to the surface, when you think of the referendum that then sort of voted down the peace accord that then had to go back to Congress, was changed and then pushed through Congress, and yet you still have a discontented youth. And, of course, this piled up with corruption and fracking, so environmental issues, which, of course, is so much at the heart of everything, and then the tax reform and I mean, it, it goes on and on. There were even people out there marching against uh, shark fin hunting. And you found yourself at the end of the quarantine in this, uh, I would say, it just it was boiling point. And Cali was really the epicenter of it all. And, and you were there. Tell us a little bit of how it felt to be there at this time. Yeah, for me, it's like, I think I'm a person I cannot and any injustices, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was, before that, I was already living in Colombia. I was living in Bogota. Mm-hmm. But the first years in Colombia, I have to admit, I was always in the Estrato 6. Mm-hmm. My, like, all of my friends were rich, and I never really saw poverty, because, you know, that social classes in Colombia, they don't mix. Yeah. So I never really had the chance to get to know, like, the Colombian people, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I got to Cali, and I was not only working in the dancing school, but I always work in different social projects mm-hmm. and I go to like, I, I always, when I come to a new city, I check where are like foundations, orphanages, social projects. So I always like to work a lot in different projects and like help the community. Yeah. And in Cali, like for the first time, I really saw like the poverty, how poor the people are that like they, they cannot even find jobs. You know, there's, it's really like an unfair and, like miserable system, you know? 
And then when like the pandemic hit and like the, the quarantine, it got worse. And the dancing school when I were, um, it also had to shut down. Mm-hmm. And my boss, she was also a good friend of mine. She lost everything because like the dancing school, it was her life. Yeah. So she lost her work. She was living. It was a huge house. She was living there. She lost the house. She she like she ended up on the street, you know. Yeah. And it was really hard for me to see my own very good friend ending on the street without a job and poverty. They couldn't even like buy anything to eat. It was really really. It was a tough time, you know. And then when the protest started, for me, it was completely the right thing to do to go there and and to open your mouth. And, and to say publicly what's wrong in this country. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened to me. And actually it went alone because my boss from the dancing school, she was, she knew Colombia, obviously, and she was afraid of the protests. And she was like, please take care when you go there. It's getting really crazy. And I was like, oh my God, no. I Because I'm like a really peaceful person. Mm-hmm. And I always thought when I don't like start any crazy stuff, people and the, like, the forces will respect me. And then when the protest started, I was just normal on the street. I was accompanying the, the demonstration and the smart came and they were firing the gases. And I never expected that, you know, I only thought they were like here to control if we freak out. But actually they started and this was like new for me. So you were there and, and people refer to you as like the Alemana, the Primera Linea. You had it. Um, but the tragedy, obviously, which is mm-hmm. incomprehensible, is that your friend was killed. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell us a bit more about what actually happened? Yes. So first of all, for me, it's also important to say that he's the love of my life. Mm-hmm. He's also like my best friend. It, it's like it's it's something I never experienced before in my life. He's like, he's like everything to me. He's like my dad. He's my son. He's my best friend. He was like my president. He was the leader of the movement, but he's also the love of my life. And well, I got to know him in Port Resistance, Puerto Resistencia, because like the first days I was still in the center of Cali, but then one of like the foundations with I worked with, they asked me for help because they said, hey, that's like the epicentro um, of the movement and they need like um, aid goods. No? You know, they need food, they need medication and stuff. So we went to the supermarket, we went to pharmacies and we bought a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. like donations for um, port resistance. And then we just wanted to go there and like hand over, no? you know, the donations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually the foundation, they were afraid because... It, you hear what what they talk in the media, no? Because people are they are only gang members and media and they're vandals. So like the foundation, they just handed over the things and they like left. And I was like, no, when I am here, I have to stay, you know? I have to because I was working in journalism before, and I was like, no, because Colombian media is lying to the people. And I was like, I have to tell the world what's really going on. And I still had my contact from different countries. So I, I took out my cell phone and I just began to record what's happening. And there the first day I met John and he was the leader of the movement. And he's like the most bravest person I've ever met in my life. He, he was completely fearless. And he was 
very noble. He was really clever, although he obviously never went to any university. He never could like realize a career. He was like amazing. When he talked to me, I really thought I would be talking to a president. It was I, I, I and I didn't even see him. No, he was an encapuchado. He was like a hooded person. So I, I never even saw his face like the first weeks. And I just completely fell in love with him for the person that he was. And well, during the um, national protest, he got death threats. And me too, like it got worse. Now over the weeks, more and more death threats. And actually, already the first day when I got to know him, he survived an assassination attempt. They shot him many times. I actually, I was, I was taking care of his wounds and stuff. So he already survived the first assassination attempt. Then one month later, they tried to kill him again. And after that, he went, he had to go to like an evacuation route with um, Derechos Humanos. Mm -hmm. And he stayed like in a safe place for one month and he had to hide because they really wanted to kill him. Yeah, but then we got, you know, like people who are in love, young people who are in love. We, 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 I don't know, we do stupid things and we wanted to see each other. Like for one month, we were only in contact over the cell phone. And then he was like, no, I have to see you. And I was like, I'm really scared that something might happen. They will kill us. And he was like, no, 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 I really want to see you. And in the end, I just accepted. And like on our first date, it was when, when they attacked us. And I still don't know who it was. I like the most, what can I tell you? Like, actually, I'm doing my own investigations, no? Because the Colombian Fiscalia is not doing anything. But most probably the um, attack was against the two of us. But actually, I still don't know. And there are no investigations going on. But we were just in the evening and parked together like a really romantic date. And then like out of nowhere came a man and he started to shoot at us and he, he didn't stop. He was shooting and shooting and shooting until there were no bullets left in his gun. And then he, yeah, he rushed away. And that's what happened. But you know how Colombia is, so I have no idea if we'll ever, I will ever find like the truth. But I can only tell you that I will never give up. I will never give up until I know what's happened. I will never give up until I have justice. And but it, but it's it's Colombia, and that's very difficult and also dangerous, of course. Yeah, um, I sympathize. Like, there's nothing I can say to to mm -hmm. make it anything uh, better. In your when you're talking, you say you know they were giving him death threats. Do we know? We don't know who they are. Did he? I suppose he suspected uh, who who might be after him. Well, we don't know. For me, for example, it started first over the internet because okay. I always I was I was mm, like recording live videos on Facebook. Yeah, and I was also publishing on Instagram, and then just from fake accounts, you know, mm -hmm. the first death threats were from fake accounts. Then also someone got my cell phone number. Then were there were messages, there were calls, and for him it was the same. Mm -hmm. And like I also got attacked, and but luckily I I, I don't know they hurt me, but it, it, I got. I was okay. They were not shooting at me. It was just the motorcycle who came and they attacked me. But 
for him it was really he was he was in Puerto Resistencia. Yeah. And the first two assassination attempts happened there. And yeah. they were just like like I cannot say, but it is a very common practice, and you know that in Colombia, that for example, like police forces come like civilians. So they don't wear their uniform. And that's what I guess. I don't know. I have no idea about but yeah, I he got just shooted from from persons without a uniform. But that's like that's happened now. The first two attacks and the third one where I was with him, I it was just a man. And I, I still know how he looks. And also I think that's why they deported me, you know, because I had um interview mm-hmm. days later. And like the only thing they wanted wanted to know from me is can you identify the person who shot at you? And I said, Yes, I can. And that was like that was like the decision, no? To deport me. It makes me think of obviously the, the killing of Lucas Villa in in mm-hmm. Pereira, I think it was. Uh, mm-hmm. the organization Forensic Architecture from Goldsmiths University, they got involved. Uh, and put mm-hmm. together a timeline. They're very good at these sort of things. You might want to get in touch with them because they will have, they are they are very uh, thorough in the investigation of cameras and locations, and they map it digitally and everything else. And I just think maybe there's there's a way of establishing because they also you know were able to to locate where the police were at a certain time, where the military were. And, mm-hmm. and so on. I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, if only to help you a little bit, because as you said, you are going to continue to investigate this and search for justice as as long mm-hmm. as it takes. And of course, justice can be very um, uh, slow in Colombia. I mm-hmm. think it's the best way of putting it. But so, I mean, I can't imagine you were on a romantic date with 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 this with this guy, your friend, and. And then, uh, the, you know, this man who you can identify and, and for this reason you feel that they deported you. They, I mean, what I've read, of course, is that the deportation mm-hmm. was due to, I mean, some people say it was for your own security. Others say it's because you uh, say you were working as a journalist and you were there on a tourist visa and therefore, uh, you know, you were not legally allowed to work in Colombia, but that would mean that every journalist that ever comes to Colombia reporting on any story would have to be deported. It was it was just a very convoluted uh practice that took place. And I mean how when you were taken in to custody, I suppose it was mm-hmm. right after the, the the killing, because you would have been there, uh did they question you as if you were a criminal or were you being treated with some, because uh, foreigners, of course, in Col- Colombia are treated with a great deal of deference, but were you, how were you treated by the authorities? Because, of course, the let's say the, the police and the army are going to be very suspicious of someone, uh, you know, supporting a foreigner, indeed, supporting the Paro Nacional. Well, I guess I was lucky because I was a foreigner. Mm. So in the end, nothing happened to me. You know, when they when they detained me and they took me like with their car, I was also thinking what's going to happen to me. Mm. Are they going to 
disappear me? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to beat me? Because that's what I knew from Colombian authorities, no? Mm. But no, actually not. Actually, they were they were treating me okay. Like there were some things that happened. For example, I couldn't do any phone call, although I know I have the right to do a phone call. Like, yeah. But, but like there were there were some things which were not very nice, let's say like this. Mm. But I I was thinking about it. actually I never talked about it and I was thinking when I got to Germany if I should talk about it. But I like actually when I was in the airplane to Germany, in this moment I was so like I I don't have words for my sadness. And I decided like this will never stop if we don't come to peace. And actually in this same flight I decided I will try to make peace. Like even with like my worst enemy and I will try to give them my hand and I will try to not like keep talking bad about what's happening in Colombia because mm-hmm. because it's only generating more and more hate, you know? So let's say like they were respecting me in a general way. Obviously they were not treating me very well, but it, it was okay. It was okay. And I could even say they saved me. They saved my life because like the people who tried to kill us, they knew I was in the hospital withdrawn because yeah. we dropped to the hospital. He he was fighting for, yeah. for six days. He was fighting yeah. and I was with him. Actually, he was, he was very well. And like the first days he was well and we like human rights came to the hospital and we were planning that we go to Germany. Actually, we were even planning the wedding. We were planning the wedding in the hospital that we would go to Germany together. But at one point, like the human rights organizations told me, hey, they will kill you because they know you are here in the hospital with him. You have they also told me you have to leave the country. Also, the German embassy in Bogota, they contacted me. Everyone told me you have to leave, they will kill you. And I was like, I don't give a fuck, I don't give a damn. I will never leave without him. I will never leave him alone. Because actually, after he got shot 12 times. He was awake. He never lost consciousness. Never. And the only thing he repeatedly said to me is, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone. Even when he was in surgery, I was with him because I wouldn't go away. And the doctors screamed at me. And I was like, no, I will not leave. And I'm with him. So I I, I had this so fixed in my mind that I cannot leave him alone, that he will be good as long as I'm with him. And that's why I told everyone I can't. I have to stay with him. I cannot go. And that's why in the end, the authorities decided and it was yeah, basically to save my life. Mm. But I, I, it's a difficult question, you know. But I, I, I think it was my decision because I'm a free human being and my decision was to stay with him. Mm. And I actually think because only after they arrested me, he died. And I, I still think if I would have stayed with him, he would be alive today because he only died after they arrested me. The first days I was, was with him and he was fine. So it, it's, it's difficult, yeah. You you talk about uh, making peace with your your worst enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. The love of your life was shot twelve times, and you can recognize you would be able to identify mm. the man who did so. Would you be able to make peace with this man? You know what? Actually, yes. I, I even I even wrote a text about it and published it. Mm. Because I, I'm looking for the man, and I really, I, I actually would like to talk to him because I think 
like for me, no one. I don't. For me, there are no bad persons. No one is is born bad. And mm-hmm. I think I know how Colombia is. Like for many very horrific maybe circumstances, people become to get kids because I know how Cali is. No, I, I people are no like people are so poor, and in the end, like you pay them. I don't know, like like I heard. Like you get ten dollars or something, and then you kill someone because you just need the money. So actually, I would like to make peace with a person. It, like I could never forgive it, but I would like to talk to the person. And I think the person should have like the opportunity to do better things in life. You know, I came to this because I saw a documentary. There's an organization I oh, I right now I don't know the name. But it was like a former army, like general, and he was killing many innocent people in the Fatos Positivo scandal, no? And after killing so many innocent people, he, he couldn't live with it. And then at one point, he decided, oh, I will kill myself, or I will use the time I have on this planet to make things better. And he was funding this organization, and he's looking for all those men or women who did many bad things. And cannot live with that consciousness. And he's giving them an opportunity to go to their victims and tell, I, I did it. Mm-hmm. I, I murdered like your son, your daughter, your, your husband. And to like, like ask for forgiveness, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 think, I think if we want to live in peace, we have to start with the truth. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize like the failures we did and so, like, for me, the most important thing was to find the person. I also don't want him dead. You know how Colombia is, no? Like, the Justicia Divina. Mm. Like, many, many people say, yeah, he will die, no problem. Someone will kill him or, like, you know, it will, justice will come for him or the destiny. But I don't want him dead. I don't want him dead. Really, I, I, I want him to realize what he's done wrong and maybe get the chance to, to change for the better. Yeah. I, I I can understand that entirely the 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 need, but also you know to have him to, that he dies is not to clarify things and and that's mm. the step along the way to reconciliation in in so mm. many circumstances, of course, as you say, you may not ever forgive him, but mm-hmm. to reach out you know the hand uh, and talk. And maybe understand, uh, you know, it, I don't think you ever understand either. But it would just, it would open a dialogue further. I, I mean, sounds. I mean, obviously, there is great, great trauma that you have suffered and continue to suffer. Not only for the mm-hmm. paro and what you've seen, uh, what you lived through with uh, John, and uh, of course, a deportation, which has to be. I mean, incredibly traumatic in itself. I have you been seeking a you know psychological or psychiatric help to try and because you sound very clear and very you know uh, I, I would say you're very uh, well. There's a, a real clarity to how you're thinking. Have you been uh, receiving some sort of treatment to help you? Yes, and you know that's. One very good thing about Germany, <laughs> although I don't like 
living in Germany and I can I cannot really appreciate Germany too much, but we have a very good health system, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Germany, I didn't have to work for one year. For one whole year, I was in psychological treatment. Mm-hmm. And like my bosses at work, they also told me, take all the time you need. And if it's two years, three years, there's no problem with it. Wow. So like actually I decided after one year, I want to go back to work. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have to. You you really have all the time you need. And for example, in Colombia, John Sebastian's mom, she got four days. <laughs> her bosses gave her four days after her son got killed. And, and I got, I I really got crazy. I really I was so angry about it. And that, I you know, mm. I right now we are at change, and I'm really happy that Petro is like the president. But there are still so many things with that. For example, I had a best friend in Colombia. And he died very young of cancer. And he was from the lower class and he died of cancer because he didn't, he couldn't get any appointment at the hospital. He was waiting for five months. And when he finally got examined, they told him, oh, you have two months more to live. We cannot do anything for you. It was just too late. So yeah, the health system in Colombia is, is very bad. And like regarding, I was really lucky in Germany, but now I'm okay. Like at one point after one year, my, my, psychologist she told me no you're fine and actually i wanted to continue and she was like no there's nothing more i can do for you you're really fine as if you've graduated um yeah yeah like yeah do you do you communicate frequently with john sebastian's mother yes yes (laughs) actually it's pretty crazy but it's beautiful you know i i always try out of all like the bad and like sad and hurtful circumstances to find something good Mm-hmm. And over the time, she really became a, ma- a mother for me. So we are in contact every day. We talk for hours every day. Actually, I even call her mom and she calls me daughter. <laughs> and we love each other so much. And yeah, the relationship is really beautiful. And there are many moments, or oh, I had many moments, and she as well, where we just couldn't go on. When we were like really losing hope, We even when we didn't even want to be here anymore, and we always supported each other we were helping each other we were always there for each other so without her i wouldn't have made it i guess yeah Mm. so i have a question here because i know that this is a little pop up i have a question here there's a new book out you're not mentioned in it but you are mentioned Mm -hmm. in some of the interviews around the book promotion there's a book by a who she was my my uh, PhD thesis uh, tutor is a, a very famous journalist in Colombia called Mariluz Vallejo, and she wrote a book just now. It's just out called Xenophobia, Xenophobia al Rojo Vivo in Colombia. And, and in a couple of the articles to promote the book, it's your mm-hmm. your name comes up as someone who's who's been deported. Since this book is all about deportations, you can see it on the screen. <laughs> um, oh, <wow. laughs> and it's thick. But it's it's nothing new in Colombia the issue of, of, of deportation and especially if you don't agree with the powers that be uh, there are people mm-hmm. who obviously had some sort of influence in a communist party or someone who's an anarchist people who and you know there was there's all sorts of things there's uh, you know nuns with with revolutionary fears and this is going back to the early 20th century I mean we're not we're not even talking that far back. Anyway, it's a great mm-hmm. book, but at the same time, you know, you're, you've been mentioned, your name has come up in some of the articles surrounding it. And what I see is people responding. And this is something I come up against a lot too, because 
I am positive of what needs to be, you know, praised. Uh, and I think there's a, a great deal that needs to be praised in Colombia and the work uh, going towards, let's say, past total. I have my doubts about certain things, but I also think that mm-hmm. we we need to back these things. But at the same time, you know, there are. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. Is anything perfect? But <laughs> Colombians, and I say this as a guest in Colombia and a longtime resident immigrant here, don't respond well to criticism of Colombia. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you have been accused, as have I, of, and I would sort of quote, interfering in the, in the affairs of Colombia as a foreigner. And the usual, uh, usual then follow-up to that is that, oh, if you don't like it here, leave. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you feel responding? I know how I feel responding to that, but how do you feel responding to people who say, oh, no, don't get involved. You, you, shouldn't, ha- you shouldn't opine or have an opinion because you're not Colombian. How, how do you feel about that? Yes. <laughs> Something came to my mind, you know. I was getting those comments frequently, no? Yeah. And like I got sick of those comments. And I remembered when I was living in Mexico, there was an artist and she was called um Chavila Vargas. And she wasn't Mexican, but she loved Mexico so much and she considered herself Mexican. Mm-hmm. And she was in an interview and someone told her, Hey, but but you're not Mexican. Why are you talking like this? You know? And she it was in Spanish, obviously, but she said something like, Come on, we Mexicans are born wherever the fuck we want to be born. You know? And I, I feel like this. I feel Colombian. What I, I can't like it's not my fault that I got born in Germany, but I feel Colombian. And it's like many people also don't know that I like for almost 15 years I'm I'm traveling. And I was living in Colombia before, you know, so I actually know Colombia very well. I was I was traveling through Colombia. I was living in Bogota before. So like we're in such a like modern world. And I think this is very narrow minded, you know, Never, very narrow minded to say like she's not Colombian. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's how I feel really, you know. And I was I was also studying a, a lot over the years about Colombia, like the history, politics. And so, like, for me, there's no point. I, I think people only say that when they don't have anything more to say, you know, when they cannot criticize me for, like, really what I'm doing or what I'm saying. And it's just like, I, she, she's not Colombian. Mm. I, I get Maybe. the idea, you see, mm. that people just think you turned up to to throw rocks at the police. I think that's what yeah. the, the image yeah. that has been broadcast here. Yes, I also wanted to tell you, like, it's a really good chance to clarify this, maybe. Um, I never broke any law. Like, not in my whole life, but even more, I, I never broke any law in Colombia. So, mm-hmm. w- when I was back in Germany, like, I got some lawyers, and, and we were talking to the Fiscalia. And actually, they had to testify that there's no ongoing investigation against me. And they've never been in conflict with the law. That they actually only deported me to save my life. Yeah. And yeah. I was always in Colombia also with a legal visa because people were telling, ah, it was a visa problem. No. And also it was no problem that I was working, but because it was always voluntary. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's voluntary work, there's no problem with a tourist visa. Mm. So the thing, they only deported me to save my life and this was okay. 
but I I never got in conflict with the law in Colombia. When when you were, let's just clarify quickly. You mm-hmm. were you there on the Primera Linea? Were you chucking bricks and and so on? Were you up there in in the the very aggressive, violent sections? Yes, I was at really the Primera Linea. I also was there when other friends of mine got shot, and I was like an eyewitness of the scenery. But the only thing I did, like my weapon, was my cell phone. I was record. I was recording. Mm-hmm. It and this was the problem because, like, the police was attacking civilians. Mm-hmm. I, I I was record recording one night when I wasn't even in Puerto Resistencia. I was just in a normal neighborhood, mm-hmm. and out of nowhere, the police came and they attacked. They even attacked children and babies. They had to reanimate babies because they were throwing those gas bombs. Mm-hmm. And they were even expired, and I got all the material recorded. Yeah. And obviously, the, this was something like the death threat that I got after this recording was also that I ruined or like I I dragged through mud like the like the image of the Colombian government on like a worldwide basis. It's really difficult to translate it to English, but mm-hmm. this was like the problem because I was just recording all the injustices, like the human rights abuses, and this was actually yeah, the problem, my work. But yeah. I only had yeah. a cell phone. That's the only, I never threw a stone. I, I never even insulted. I, I never did anything. I was just recording. And and these videos, these recordings, what, what are we doing with those? <laughs> oh my God. I, I think I never told it on an interview, but maybe now that you ask me, you know what I did? Because when, after they arrested me, mm-hmm. I was like two days, like in a cell because they, they couldn't, they couldn't deport me because they, I wanted to go for my passport, but they didn't let me and I explained them without a passport, I cannot fly, but they didn't believe me. In the end, they noticed, oh my God, without a passport, she cannot fly. And it took like two days until they, arranged me something like an emergency document. Mm-hmm. And I was crying so much in this time, I was really devastating because I was thinking about John and I could not put myself in contact with him because they didn't let me do any phone calls. And during those two, two days, they were taking photos of me. Mm. Like really embarrassing photos, really embarrassing photos. And when we were in the flight to Germany, I decided I will delete all my material because we really need peace in this country. Mm-hmm. When we got to Germany, there were two officials traveling with me. Mm-hmm. And I told them, look, when I got out of this airplane, I will delete all my material. But please, don't send those pictures because it's really humiliating. And I was like, you, you, were, you, were, like, you were taking photos of me, videos of me, like in the most humiliating way possible. So please just don't send it to the press. And I, I was telling them, look, I will delete all the material. So I got to Germany. The first thing I did, I really deleted everything. But they didn't give a damn. They sent it to the press anyway. So it, it was really sad. It was really sad. It wasn't even like an agreement. I just said I would do it. And it would be nice if you would respect me in this way. Yeah. But they sent it to the press, the material. Well. Wow. What were the humiliating photographs? I mean, I didn't pay that much attention, but but what I mean, what? Yeah, actually, the good thing is because um, the German embassy, I mm. was talking to the ambassador 
and I was asking for his help, and he made the press release the material. Oh wow! It was like yeah, they were like the German embassy. They were really nice. They were helping me. It was yeah. really cool. It was really nice of them. You, maybe it's just like for people like you, it wouldn't be so bad seeing the material. But mm. for me, it was just like the worst hours of my life. Yeah. And getting reminded of the worst hours of my life, being there, like I, I really felt like dying, you know, and they were taking, yeah. like I was an animal, you know, they were taking pictures of me. So maybe it's just for me, but for me, it was r really hurtful to see it in the in the media. Well, it's a dehumanization, isn't it? It's, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so the Petro government came in, we'll jump to this, and they've overturned, you know, your deportation orders. Mm -hmm. When are you coming back? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put it this way. Maybe I, I can tell you it was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. It was like the moment when I realized how much we changed this country within just one year. It was in October, last October. Mm -hmm. And like out of nowhere, I got a phone call. And it was... um. How do I say it in English? Like the general director of the of Colombian migration. Yeah. And he was like, "Are you Rebecca?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he was like, "Oh, um, I just wanted to inform you that we are really, really, really happy to invite you back to Colombia. You're more than welcome." And like, he he held like a speech for like ten minutes, <laughs> like giving me all the respect in the world for for what I've sacrificed for my work. For, for like for everything I did for the country. And he was like, please just come with the next flight back to Colombia. We are waiting for you. Everyone yeah. wants to get to know you. And this like this is coming directly from Petro. And it was and I was like, I was crying. And I guess he as well because I was like, damn, like just one year ago, you know, they were mm -hmm. like the same the same like institution, you know? They were screaming at me, arresting me, threatening me, insulting me, despising me. And just one year ago, they are calling me to invite me again in the like you know the sweetest yeah. way possible. It was it was just for me this moment was so historic, and it was like it was really worth like the pain we suffered, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so yeah. But unfortunately, during the same time, um, I got some health issues. Like yeah. like about ten years ago, I got a myocarditis, um, which is like um inflammation of the heart. Yeah. And since then, yeah. sometimes my heart like makes problems. And just end of October, I got COVID. Ugh. And because when you are like a myocarditis patient and then you get COVID, it's getting worse for your heart. And this was like what happened to me. Yeah. So like the doctors told me like I was thinking about getting back, but I knew when I go back to Colombia because I was talking to Gustavo Bolivar and he was like, no, we're doing so many interviews and tv shows and we're doing a tour and you're going to the congress and da, da, da. everyone wants to get to know you and i was like okay it's not really going to be quiet you know not really <laughs> relaxing and then i decided no i have to take care of my health yes. so i had to cancel the plan which was really like yeah really sad for me um but now i'm better and i'm planning to go back but yeah it's like also like um a security question so i yeah. cannot really talk about it but i'm making plans right now yeah okay and gustavo bolivar i mean you and he mm -hmm. have been in touch a lot i mean he wants to make you can't tell me everything i know but he wants to make a movie yeah he had this very beautiful idea it was like about 
last November, no, the year before in November, because I'm always doing vacations in Mexico for the Day of the Dead. Yes. And he was like, oh my God, you're in Mexico. I have to see you. I'm coming over. And he came to Mexico and then he presented me the idea. He was like, hey, like the story of you and John Sebastian is like the most beautiful modern love story. <laughs> like, obviously, like with a tragic end, but he was like, no, we have to make a movie out of it. We have to do it. And, and I accepted. Mm. And even more because, like, my plan also, like, to heal, like, my healing process is I want to fund, like, like, a foundation. I want to do charity in his name. And then, like, Olivia and I, we decided that, like, whatever is going out of, like, the movie, we can put it in the foundation to do, like, good things in Cali, Colombia. And, and then I accepted. So we had the idea of the movie. We were working on it. I was always telling him. I was doing him voice notes, telling him all that happened with John, like, the whole story. And then in October, when I wanted to go back to Colombia now, and I had to cancel it, like, he was making all the plans, you know, to work on the movie and everything. And I was telling him, hey, like, I have to take care of my health. For now, I cannot do any crazy stuff. Mm. So for now, we also had to cancel the plans. But um, I guess when I'm coming back to Colombia, we are also going to work on the on the project. Yes. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. I mean, honestly, this is quite the story. Uh, I like very much that you have been able to clarify to us your knowledge and, of course, the time. Mm -hmm spent in Colombia it's that because really the way that you were you were uh, presented to the press or the press presented you the mainstream mm -hmm. here is that you're kind of like a, a paro nacional tourist you know, someone who came along to to you know, participate in something you don't do back home for example that's mm. uh, and and then people of course who say would you do this in Germany would you get up there and be in the Primera Linea in Germany. If, if the situation were similar, I, I assume you would. Let's say I would do it everywhere where my heart feels like doing it. Mm -hmm. For example, like in Germany, I guess not, but for me, it's just, just not my country. Mm. But in Mexico, when I was working in journalism, I was also, you could say, I was interfering, you know, mm -hmm. with, with like the country because I was doing it. It was just when the... The time when Trump got elected. Yeah. And I also got like to, to all those barrios. I was taking interviews. I was also scream, um, writing like, yeah, I was writing about it publicly. So I was, I don't know. Mm. Like I was also, you know, getting into like the country's business, which should not be my business. But when my heart feels like doing it and I think it's something good and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not hurting anyone. So yeah, I, I would I would still do it when my heart tells me I should. I, I would do it, yeah. So I mean, I think if we if we sort of wrap this up because I know you're you're busy and you plenty in travel and so on and so forth. I think my my conclusion really is that mm -hmm. it, what you faced in Colombia, the deportation, not just I mean, but but also this type of stigma attached to you is what they've said about this book the one that i've told you about is, is it's kind of like a xenophobia linked to an mm -hmm. anti-communist paranoia for showing solidarity with the paro nacional would you feel that that is a 
a, uh, a kind of like an appropriate sum up, summing up of, of what you kind of went through, someone being of left of center, getting involved and expressing opinions and views? Is, is it a certain degree of, of paranoia and, and xenophobia in Colombia? Yes. In kind of a way, yes, it is. But look, the problem in Colombia also is like it starts when you were born because you are born in a system, you are born in a social class. Mm. And, you know, the first years I was in Colombia, I was with those people. Mm. And the problem is I know that all the education they receive, like what the parents tell them, like it's not their fault. Many people always what like asking me, what would you say to Duque? What do you think about President Duque in the time no, of the national strike? And for me, it's like he was like just a poor fool of the system because he not he, he never got told like the whole part of the story. It's it's really like, you know, when you are like um, in an Uribista family, it's all that you know and it's all that they ever tell you and teach you. And like the people who are attacking me, it's like I think the, the failure is in the education system in Colombia because you like, like the the poor classes. What they get taught is like the, the the classes are generating hate against each other. So it's like like you know since you were little you got taught that like there are two sides in Colombia and you have to fight each other you have to hate each other you have to insult each other you cannot accept the other side. So I just think we have to change the education system and I really. For me, like, for example, many people think I have a problem, like, with the, with authority, with, like, the police, with the government. It's not like this. Like, I actually, I have a Colombian ex-boyfriend. He was a cop, and I have no problem at all with cops, with policemen. So I, I try not to give, like, not to blame anyone for their actions. It's just like they have, like, really bad education, you know? That's what I think. I think there's a, a lot of truth to what you're saying in that. And and I think also if Colombians aren't taught history in, in public schools, then mm-hmm. you know, it, it's very dangerous because you need to know what's happened in order to mm-hmm. be able to, to move forwards. And, and I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed that I can be the geek in history amongst people. <laughs> uh, but then that's, you know, I, I come from a, a land where history is everything and we just, it's on everywhere. <laughs> Almost too much is, is defined by history. Uh, but, but at the same time, I find it, it's, it's so pushed to one side here. And I think, yes, the education system, I'm sure that the current president, President Petro, has his eye on the education system, and of course, Alejandro Gaviria, the Minister for Education, is a very intelligent uh, man, and hopefully there will be some sort of educational reform coming ahead in in, in, in the next uh, three years. But uh, I, I would like to take this moment, Rebecca, to say thank you so much for your time and for speaking so openly and frankly about well, there's no other way putting it. Is is an absolute tragedy of, of John Sebastian and and what you went through, and hopefully we can put this out there a little bit. This interview to this conversation to help the reconciliation between, let's say, Rebecca Rebecca Spruce and and Colombia. Yes, 
you know. And actually, when I come back, I want to get involved in a project because my dancing school where I was working at, they came back to life and now they have a really cool project and it's called Salsa Path. And now they try to reconciliate like those two sides, no? You know, like like the like the security forces, you know, and like the people from the barrio. Mm -hmm. And they want to make them dance salsa together. And like the project is called Salsa Paz, Un Paso por la Paz. And when I heard about the project, I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and like, it's it, because, you know, in Colombia, everyone dances salsa. I guess you too. I hope you not too. very well. Not very well at all. <laughs> Even 16 years later, still not very well. <laughs> but it, I think it's a really beautiful idea. And it, for example, like when I got back to Germany, I went back to my salsa dancing team. And there was a Colombian who came and he was really Uribista. He was like, ah, oh, are you Rebecca? And I was like, yes. And he was like, oh my God, I'm from Colombia. But I'm Uribista. And first he was really like verbally attacking me badly. Mm. But then he was like, oh, whatever, let's dance. And then we danced salsa, like three songs. And then he was, after that, he was so relaxed and he was so cool. And he was like, actually, you're really, you're really nice. You're really nice. And then he was, and during like those, like 10 minutes of dancing, he made peace with mm. me. And after that, he treated me like a normal person. And we were even like talking about Colombia and, and politics, but it was really respectful. And mm. I was like, oh my God, it was just for dancing salsa. So I think it, it really could work. I think, I think, and I'll make this my last point, is what happened to you and the images of you and the sort of, let's say, the uh, imagination surrounding you puts people in Colombia on edge, in particular when they think of uh, the Dutch uh, far gorilla uh, Tanya Niemeyer. I think they lump you two together. Uh, and, and I think that perhaps creates a lot of the stigma that you you, you received. I mean, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, but it's it's also like the media mm. because like there were articles and they were putting me, you know, like, like someone from the guerrilla, like like I would be a terrorist. Mm. And yeah, so there are many people still who think I, I I'm like a violent person, you know. But actually, I'm, I'm the complete opposite. I cannot stand violence. Mm -hmm. For example, when I, when I was in port resistance, like I was even arguing with those guys because they were having stones and stuff to defend themselves. And I was like, how could you ever throw a stone yeah. at a policeman? That's so bad. You don't do that. And they, were like, well, they, are, they are shooting at us. And I was like, I don't know. Although someone would be shooting at me, I think I couldn't like throw a stone. That's so bad. Like mm -hmm. I'm really unable to 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 like act in a violent way so but that's something i really have to still put straight you know yeah. in, in the public eye because many people don't know that yeah. well that's i mean that's it you've you've uh given me a you know a completely different view of what has been uh has been sort of propagated out there in, in the press i mean you are widely vilified and that's the truth. Mm -hmm. and, and so mm -hmm. I, I'd let me thank you for for, for, for telling me your story, uh, you reclaiming the narrative somewhat. It's just my little podcast, but it does go out to thousands. Uh, and hopefully this is the first step in, the, in a direction, again, of this reconciliation. So, uh, Rebecca, thank you again for your time. Uh, thank you so much, Richard. And it would also be really nice to getting 
to know you in person one day when I get yeah, back. One day when you're here, you just let me know. <laughs> exactly. I'm always here. One day in the future. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Listen, in the meantime, look after your health, stay safe, mm -hmm. and, and of course, keep on loving Colombia. Mm -hmm. And no, thank you so much what you are doing for Colombia. Because like it, it doesn't happen very often that I got asked to do an interview in English, but I like to do it because it's, it's like this is going like over the whole planet, you know, everyone can listen to it, everyone can understand it. So I think it's really, really, really important to talk in English. Mm -hmm. And there are not many people in Colombia doing this. So like, thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> thank for you. being there, for doing your job, <laughs> for, for going on with it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. Listen, have a, have a great rest of the week and we will talk in the future. Okay, bye. Thank bye you bye. so much. Big hug. Ciao. The Colombia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website. That's bnbcolumbia.com. And they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. Chorro y atarra.